Hey everyone, I'm Brian Hoops and you're listening to Walking Through Fire. So if you couldn't tell by the title already, we're kind of be going back to another Famous Troops-esque episode, but this time we're going to be kind of covering uh, two individuals that went on to commit some of the worst terrorist acts in American history. So before we really dive into this, when I had come up with the idea to do this topic, I, I didn't think there was going to be like a very large list of uh, potential people to cover. But when I kind of delve more into this topic to kind of start gaining like ideas for episodes, there's actually a decent amount of uh, U.S. troops who later went on to commit like pretty heinous acts. Uh, and I just want to go ahead and say, I'm not like doing this in an attempt to malign the military. Uh, I mean, myself, I'm an army veteran and proud of what I did. So I'm not, I'm not trying to paint this picture that like, it's the military who like, you know, trains these people to do, you know, some of these, some of these horrible acts. And that's one thing that I want everyone to kind of keep in mind when you're listening to this. I will say though, the uh, second guy that we'll be covering in the, the last half of the episode he definitely had a negative experience in the military that kind of influenced him but it wasn't like you know his it, it, he wasn't like a trained killer to go out and commit what he did and we'll, we'll delve more into his story and everything that built up to it that a little bit later but before we really start getting into the episode itself, let's establish what is meant by terrorism. Because words like that and like Nazi, fascist, communist, etc. These words, they get thrown around so often that people lose sight of what they actually mean. And the tone of like a word like Nazi nowadays is like how people just used to call each other a dick or a fucking asshole back in simpler pre-internet times. So per the FBI's official website, terrorism is defined in two ways. International terrorism, violent, which is violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups who are inspired by or associated with designated foreign terrorist organizations or nations, state-sponsored. Domestic terrorism is defined as violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, such as those of a political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. So with keeping those definitions in mind, let's dive into the life, military service, and the horrible acts committed by these fucking trash people. So the first guy we're covering today, I'm just going to admit this straight off the bat. I'm not, probably not going to be shedding new light on this individual because there are numerous documentaries, books, scholarly articles, and so forth that has covered this man and what he's done. Pretty much every rock's been unturned. If you grew up in the 1990s like me, you probably, at least if you don't know the name, you probably know what he did and the terrorist attack that he carried out. But the first person that I'm going to be talking about is Timothy McVeigh. Timothy McVeigh was a former U.S. Army infantryman and Gulf War veteran who, on April 19, 1995, detonated a truck bomb in Oklahoma City in front of the Alfred P. Murrah Building. He killed over, or he killed 168 people and wounded up to 700 others. So, as I mentioned before, and I'm probably going to be keep reiterating this throughout this segment there have been thousands of accounts for the reasonings and the lead up for what happened what caused timothy mcveigh 
to pull off such a horrible act of terrorism. But I think the overall, uh, the overlapping theme through all of these is that McVeigh had anti-government beliefs that were stemmed from the Ruby Ridge and Waco sieges that had just occurred a few years before the bombings. And those beliefs have been festering in McVeigh since his teenage years, since he discovered his favorite book, The Turner Diaries, which we'll delve into more of what The Turner Diaries is a bit later. But let's get into the early life, the military service, and subsequent terrorist attack of the Oklahoma City bomber. So Timothy James McVeigh was born April 23rd, 1968 in Lockport, New York. His parents were Mildred and Bill McVeigh. Bill McVeigh was a very regimented, typical small town guy. He worked the same job at an auto plant for decades, was considered like a union guy, ran bingo night at the local Catholic church in town and went to mass every Sunday. McVeigh's mother, on the other hand, thought this was kind of boring and she left Bill to raise Tim and his two sisters. McVeigh had a very lonely childhood with his father working nights and his mother barely came around to visit uh, her children. She ended up picking up, I think it's like a real estate agent. So she like barely stopped by to ever see her kids. McVeigh's parents officially divorced by the time he was at age 10. McVeigh really wanted friends, and because his dad worked nights, he knew, he was trying to make his like uh, house like the the neighborhood house where all the kids hung out. From what I read, he kind of came off as like that spoiled, annoying kid who had like all the really cool toys and video games, and like if you could just kind of put up with him, then you know you'd be able to like play the newest Mortal Kombat. That's you know what it kind of reminded me of reading and growing up. From what I could find, by the time McVeigh had entered high school, he was a fairly quiet guy, like he was just kind of in the background. Later on, McVeigh would claim that he was uh, bullied in high school, which I'm not downplaying this, but it seemed like he was just more teased or just kind of like childish name calling. Apparently he was very, very tall and very lanky, and I guess other students which kind of made fun of him for that, but it wasn't like he was like getting you know, the shit beat out of him every single day or anything like that. By his teen years, McVeigh began spending a lot of time with his grandfather, who was a staunch Second Amendment fan fanatic. For those outside of the States, the Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is the right to bear arms, or is essentially the reasons why one American household can legally own up to 100 guns if they desire. It was during his teenage years when McVeigh began shooting 22 caliber rifles and BB guns in the woods by his house, typically by himself. And 22 caliber is the smallest caliber you can use for either a rifle or a handgun. So it's it's sometimes like a 22 caliber rifle is sometimes referred to as like a quote unquote like starter rifle because it doesn't have a lot of like kick or a lot of power. And it, some of his high school classmates and friends recalled McVeigh bringing handguns to his school to show them to, you know, try to impress everyone and show that he was like a badass. It was also during this time McVeigh began getting heavily into the magazine Soldier of Fortune. And for those who don't know what Soldier of Fortune is, I think it's still around. Basically, it's the Craigslist for mercenaries, for selling guns, for selling military equipment. Agencies will post listings to ask for veterans to come join rogue armies in places like Rhodesia. 
It's basically like a gun nut magazine, but I mean, it. I've, I've read Soldier of Fortune before, and they, they have some pretty interesting articles, but yeah, McVeigh got super, super into it. A lot of the articles written in Soldier of Fortune magazine has a fairly anti-government, pro-Second Amendment tone, but it's also around this time when McVeigh gets a copy of a book that would pretty much become his his catcher in the rye, almost his Bible that he would take with him for literally the rest of his life. And the book is what we mentioned earlier, The Turner Diaries. I'd previously seen documentaries about Oklahoma City, and then I've kind of been just watching like random documentaries on like uh, white supremacist hate groups in America. And the one thing that always like that they all seem to have in common is the Turner Diaries. So I in going into this episode, I kind of had an idea as to what it was, but I kind of was curious just to kind of see like what what was it about the allure of the book. And I was able to find a copy of it. I didn't I did not buy it because I simply refused to. I was able to find a PDF of it online and I read decent chunks of it and it is hot fucking garbage. It, it is the most disgusting thing I've ever read in my life. And the fact that it's still even out there and still available for people to read the entire novel is pretty, pretty disturbing. The book, The Turner Diaries, was written under the pseudonym Andrew MacDonald, but the actual person who wrote it was a man named William Luther Pierce. He was a physicist and former college professor that was also an ardent racist, but a pussy and a nerd. So he wrote a novel manifesto to give future neo-Nazis a loose manual on how to carry out terrorism and how to like create terrorist cells within the United States. Personally, I think it's fair to call William Luther Pierce essentially the grandfather to the modern neo-Nazi movements that we're seeing today. The Turner Diaries is a garbage book. To give an overview, it is a novel written in the perspective of a journal by a fictional character named Earl Turner. The Turner Diaries itself takes place in an alternate 1990s where the U.S. government is influenced heavily by Israel and the U.S. passes a law called the Cohen Act, which requires all Americans to either turn in their guns to the government or be subjected to police raids. The passing of the Cohen Act turns the U.S. into a police state under a fictional uber-liberal government that also like uh, passes these additional laws that are like intentionally supposed to be like oppressive towards white people. And Earl Turner ends up going underground and joins a white supremacist resistance group called The Order. During the Turner Diaries, there's one part in the story where Earl Turner and members of the Order attack government buildings in Washington, D.C. by makeshift mortar fire and other means. This is where McVeigh was partially inspired to carry out the attack on the Murrah building in Oklahoma City. While the story of the Turner Diaries itself is being told, the book gives specific details on how to build bombs, start terror cells, key points of infrastructure to attack and whatnot. It's basically a blueprint for terrorism disguised in a shitty racist novel. I listened to an interview of William Luther Pierce with Art Bell, I want to say about four years after the Oklahoma City bombing. Art Bell asked William Luther Pierce if he felt any responsibility or any kind of guilt for terrorist attacks that have been 
pulled off because of his novel and specifically the Oklahoma City bombing. And Pierce, such a piece of shit, just basically brushed it off and said he was not responsible for the actions of people who read his book. It was also in high school where Timothy McVeigh had his first sexual experience. He lost his V-card to one of his co-workers at the local Burger King that he worked at. And I, I kind of bring this up because I'm fully convinced that this was Timothy McVeigh's only sexual experience in his life. And also another reason I bring this up is some of the articles and stuff that I was reading uh, that kind of goes back and analyzes Timothy McVeigh with like modern day terrorists. The angle they try to kind of sell McVeigh's motivations at is that he was a sexually frustrated man and is like kind of falling in line with what we know nowadays with internet subcultures as like the incel movement. But I don't really, I don't think that really plays too much into it. I just kind of think it's anti-government rhetoric, pro-Second Amendment rhetoric, and then mixed in with his racist love for the Turner Diaries is what kind of pushed McVeigh to the edge. In 1986, Timothy McVeigh graduates high school, and by 1988, McVeigh joins the U.S. Army. So McVeigh was sent to basic training at Fort Benning. He went to infantry school, and I believe his official MOS was 11 Bravo Infantrymen. While McVeigh was in basic training, he met Terry Nichols, one of his accomplices in the Oklahoma City bombing. Nichols and McVeigh connected over an obsession with guns, as well as McVeigh's favorite book, The Turner Diaries. After basic training, McVeigh, along with Nichols, were stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, and this is where they would meet the third accomplice to the Oklahoma City bombing, Michael Fortier. McVeigh had adjusted to active duty military life fairly well. He was considered by some accounts as a almost model soldier while he was on duty. But when he was off duty, his platoon members recalled that when it was Friday night and the rest of the platoon would go out and get drunk and go to strip clubs and whatnot, they said that McVeigh would spend his Fridays and his off time in general filling his rucksack with rocks and marching around the base. McVeigh's barracks roommate Dave Dilley years later said McVeigh was obsessed with military culture and would read field manuals in his off time and he would constantly watch the movie Red Dawn. Also McVeigh would try to get his fellow soldiers to read the Turner Diaries and then try to have these deep discussions but everyone wasn't really having it. They're like I'm not gonna read this fucking shitty racist novel. McVeigh throughout his time in the army displayed racist actions and racial racist tendencies McVeigh was offered a trial membership to the KKK and went to one meeting and then never showed back up. There was an incident where McVeigh noticed African-American soldiers on Fort Riley where he was stationed wearing Black Panthers and Black Power t-shirts. McVeigh responded to this by wearing a white Power t-shirt he bought from the one KKK meeting he attended and was subsequently counseled or written up for this. There's also said by guys that were in the same platoon as McVeigh that when he became a sergeant, he would intentionally pick African-American soldiers to do like the hardest and shittiest work details. McVeigh desired to join the U.S. Army Special Forces or Green Berets as they're also known as. McVeigh was physically prepping to attend Special Forces selection in 1990, but in January 1991, the Persian Gulf War breaks out. McVeigh's deployment in the Gulf War, I think, is one of the things that really, really psychologically traumatizes McVeigh, and I think is one of the one of the biggest one of the biggest factors that kind of sends him over the edge. The Persian Gulf War itself is when Saddam Hussein's Iraqi forces 
invaded parts of Kuwait in an attempt to seize some of the oil fields there. However, shortly after when the Iraqis invaded, the U.S. as well as various countries from NATO intervened. When U.S. forces were briefed prior to the invasion in terms of what they were going to be facing with the Iraqis, they were told that they were going to be facing a hardened force and the war would last for months, if not years. You know, there was like the threat of Scud missiles, gas attacks, all this other crazy shit. The Iraqi army did have a couple of extremely elite and crack units that were prepared to go toe-to-toe with U.S. forces. But one thing to kind of keep in mind is that the Iraqi army had just ended the Iran-Iraq war about three years ago. And the fighting during this conflict was fucking brutal, to say the least. The Iran-Iraq war was almost to the scale of like World War One is what it could be almost compared to. There were heavy casualties, they, there were bayonet charges constantly, and there's the use of gas weapons on both sides. So needless to say, the Iraqi army wasn't in the best shape to actually fight against the U.S. as a whole. McVeigh was a turret gunner for a Bradley fighting vehicle, which has a fixed 25mm cannon attached to it. McVeigh was an expert shot and was awarded top gun in his battalion. There's a story that McVeigh, in the early hours of the Gulf War, used his Bradley turret gun and literally shot the head off an Iraqi soldier from over a thousand yards away. McVeigh also said he constantly saw dead bodies of Iraqi soldiers and civilians on the roadsides. McVeigh became disillusioned with his career in the army during his time in the Gulf War. He realized quick that most of the Iraqi army didn't stand a chance against the United States. I believe McVeigh kind of felt like guilty because they were just, they were not able to stand up and fight against him. He wasn't facing a hardened and well-equipped enemy like he had been told. And I think he just kind of felt like he was like bullying them around and it was just a completely one-sided fight. When McVeigh returned from the Gulf War, he was given the opportunity to go to special forces selection. McVeigh was incredibly out of shape and quickly washed out. I don't know how it worked back then, but I'm pretty sure he could have gone back and tried again. However, McVeigh decided that this was his last big thing he was going to try in the army and decided to end his time and finish out his contract and left in 1991. After the army, McVeigh returned to upstate New York and worked as a security guard. And in his off time, he wrote letters and reconnected with Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier. McVeigh is a complete piece of shit, but I will say that there's one aspect of the story where he deserves at least the slightest bit of sympathy. McVeigh was having trouble readjusting to society and recognized he had mental health issues. And... He attempted to call his local Veterans Administration Medical Center, but they simply took his information and say they'd give him a call back, and that never occurred. However, though, McVeigh is still a horrible piece of shit who went on to kill and injure many, many people. In 1992, an event occurred that fueled McVeigh's hatred and paranoia towards the federal government. That incident was the Ruby Ridge, Idaho standoff between Randy Weaver and the FBI. Randy Weaver was an army veteran that moved his family to Ruby Ridge in the 1980s after purchasing a plot of land and building a small cabin. 
He had a survivalist live off the grid mentality. He believed that an apocalypse was coming, so he decided to move his wife, son, and daughter to go live off the grid. At this time in the 1980s, there was a growing survivalist militia and also a Christian identity slash white supremacist movement that was headquartered in Ruby Ridge simultaneously. And the group that it was under was called the Aryan Nations. Now, the documentary that I watched where they interviewed Brandy Weaver's daughter about the Ruby Ridge standoff, she maintained that her father was not in any way a white supremacist or affiliated with the Aryan nations. However, though, when the kids were growing up, Weaver did take his children to Aryan nations, like picnics and barbecues and stuff, so they could play with other kids. But I think it's it's kind of up for debate what like Weaver's actual beliefs are because he's never really come out and said that like you know I believe in you know white supremacy or anything like that. But it's just it's kind of up for question. Now I bring up that Weaver took his kids to certain social events that the Aryan Nations were holding because the FBI wanted to take down the Aryan Nations and they needed an informant. They knew Weaver had some kind of affiliation with the group, so the FBI essentially entrapped Weaver by having him illegally modify shotguns by sawing down the barrels and then selling them to an undercover FBI agent. Weaver was arrested, but he was released shortly after and never showed up for his court date, which issued a warrant for his arrest. The FBI basically went to go raid his uh, cabin in the woods. And the standoff, that's when the standoff began. It lasted for 11 days and ended with Weaver shot, his wife and son dead, and Randy Weaver behind bars to this day. His daughter survived, and as I mentioned, she's still telling their story. I'm really, really glossing over this, but I'll probably come back and cover the entire Ruby Ridge standoff itself in more detail later. During the entire incident, local Aryan Nations members were outside of Weaver's compound protesting and shouting at law enforcement officers about how they were attacking innocent Americans and trying to take away their guns and their and their constitutional rights. And I mean, the FBI, to, and I, I can probably miss this detail, the FBI snipers actually shot first and I believe they killed Randy Weaver's son was the first person to get shot without the Weavers even knowing, without getting any kind of warning shot or warning to come outside. They basically, basically were served like a no-knock warrant, but the FBI just surrounded their compound through the woods and didn't like give the Weavers any kind of warning whatsoever. McVeigh soaked this up and was infuriated that the government would do this to one of its own citizens. He decided to quit his job and take up selling guns and various other merchandise on the gun show circuit. He drove to Terry Nichols' farm in Michigan and then shortly after to Arizona, selling copies of the Turner Diaries and other, other you know, just pieces of merchandise and whatnot. But he also reconnected with Michael Fourier during this time. In 1993, the second big event that influenced Timothy McVeigh to bomb the Murrah Building in Oklahoma City occurred. This was the 51-day siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and numerous other law enforcement agencies. The Branch Davidians were basically a cult that was headed by a guy named David Koresh. The Branch Davidians were apocalyptic, meaning that they thought the world also was like coming to the end, coming coming to an end, sort of like uh, sort of like Randy Weaver at Ruby Ridge, 
and where they're staying at they're hoarding weapons such as grenades assault rifles but they were also accused of modifying some of the rifles that they had to fire from semi-automatic to fully automatic uh in their defense though from what's like the entire accusations that were put against them it seemed like at one point they were trying to like legally register these weapons but i i, I didn't i didn't look into it enough Koresh himself also had been reported and later confirmed as a pedophile, having polygamous marriages with his female followers, and some of them were as young as 12 and 13 years old. The Waco siege, much like Ruby Ridge, was a huge fuck-up. It was essentially a 51-day full-fledged firefight between branch members and the ATF and other law enforcement agencies. To be fair, though, the ATF had never seen anything like this. In fact, really no law enforcement agency had seen anything quite like this outside of Ruby Ridge at this point in the country. At the end of the 51 days, a final assault was carried out with a joint law enforcement task force that resulted in the Branch Davidian compound burning down, killing 76 branch members on the last day, among, children amongst them, but in total the entire Waco incident left 82 branch members dead. When Waco kicked off, McVeigh drove to Waco, Texas to peddle his merch out of his trunk outside of the Davidian compound and was even interviewed by a local TV station discussing his anti-government views. In the aftermath of Waco, McVeigh had all the reason he needed to set out on his personal plan to lead an attack on the U.S. government. McVeigh begins throwing around ideas with Fortier and Nichols about how to get back at the government, whether it be a political assassination or just any kind of gesture to get the government's attention. Inspired by the Turner Diaries, McVeigh settled on blowing up a government building and began practicing building bombs and doing dry runs between com compounds in Kansas and a place called Elohim City, Oklahoma, which in itself is another haven for white supremacists and the Christian identity movement. The Murrah building was selected because of the low security measures around the building itself. McVeigh began casing the Murrah building with Fortier and began building the massive bomb with Nichols. In April of 1995, McVeigh, along with a man we only know as John Doe No. 2, who is described as an olive-skinned man, rented a Ryder rental van and began the construction of the 5,000-pound ammonium nitrate bomb. On April 19th, the anniversary of Waco, McVeigh drove to the Murrah building and parked the truck in front of the Murrah building, setting a two-minute fuse and then walked away. The bomb went off and the explosion rocked surrounding blocks and blew the entire front of the Murrah building out. To give you an idea as the types of people inside the Murrah building, in a lot of federal buildings across the United States, there's Social Security office, there's a military recruiting office that was in the Murrah building, and there's even a daycare, and those were amongst the 168 people killed. The reason why I'm trying to kind of explain this was these weren't law enforcement agencies that McVeigh was targeting. He was targeting normal people that were just going to work and people who use government benefits such as at the Social Security Administration. After the bombing, McVeigh escaped the scene in a drop car that he parked nearby. He fled Oklahoma City but was pulled over about 75, 70 miles outside the city because he was driving a car that had no license plates. 
When the state trooper who pulled over McVeigh began writing him a ticket, and he noticed a bulge in McVeigh's jacket, which was a gun McVeigh was illegally carrying. McVeigh was arrested for possession of a firearm without a license and was taken to the local jail. While this was going on, a composite sketch of the suspect was being shown all around Oklahoma at local hotels, car rental agencies, and whatnot. McVeigh, at a local motel in Oklahoma City, used his real name, and an employee was able to positively identify him. So the FBI picked up McVeigh at the police station he was being held at for the weapons charge. Terry Nichols, who had helped build the bomb, turned himself in by April 21st, less than two days after the actual bombing. His house was searched by the FBI, where they found bomb-making materials and anti-government literature. Fortier was picked up by the FBI around this time, too. Because he had helped case the building, he was going to be charged as well, but he immediately flipped on McVeigh and Nichols and testified against them for a reduced sentence. He was released from federal prison in 2006. Fortier and Nichols like immediately flipped on McVeigh and both of them testified against him during the trial. McVeigh was the only one out of the trio who stuck to his beliefs till the bitter end. Nichols was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. McVeigh was sentenced to death and on June 11, 2001, was put to death by lethal injection in a federal penitentiary in Terre Haute, Indiana. Before his execution, McVeigh's final statement was handed to the warden of the prison. It was the poem Invictus by William Ernest Henley. The last two lines of the poem read, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And that ended the life of Timothy McVeigh. Now again, I probably didn't bring up any like, you know, groundbreaking facts or anything like this. And if this is something that interests you, I highly recommend looking into it because the, the Oklahoma City bombings and everything behind like Timothy McVeigh has been interpreted and the story has been retold a thousand different ways. And, you know, the, the, depending on who you're asking, the motivations are different. So it's, it's really interesting. There's a lot of like conspiracy theories and all these other things uh, that kind of weave into the story. But I just kind of want to hit the broad points on it, because if I'm going to do, you know, an episode on troops that turn to terrorism, I would kind of be a little remiss not to bring up Timothy McVeigh's story. The next guy we'll be looking into was a U.S. Navy veteran named Mark Essex. I'd never heard his story before, but stumbled across it in a book that I recently purchased called Mass Murderers, but he could also be described as a terrorist as well, and we'll go into the reasons why. Now, some would define Essex as a mass murderer, a spree killer, but I think there was definitely some, there's definitely some ideology that was put behind what he did. But also, I think it's fair to say that he was somewhat of a product of his time and his environment, uh, whereas McVeigh kind of just had batshit crazy paranoid beliefs. Essex, I feel, was kind of more molded by the people that were around him and also just what was going on in the country at the time. I'll let you, the listener, decide, but between December 31st, 1972 and January 7th, 1973, Mark Essex carried out an attack where he aimed to kill as many police officers and white people as possible in New Orleans, Louisiana. The motivation for the attack stemmed from racial discrimination Essex faced when he was in the U.S. Navy that carried over into American society at the time. Mark James Robert Essex was born August 12, 1949 in Emporia, Kansas. 
His father, Mark Sr., was a foreman at a meatpacking plant, and his mother, Nellie, was a preschool counselor. Essex grew up in a relatively middle-class suburban life. Emporia itself is a small town, and at the time of the birth of Essex, there is only about 15,000 residents, and it's still a small town to this day. Emporia didn't have a large African-American population at the time. It was around only 500, but those residents didn't really recall any major incidents of racial violence that the rest of the southern U.S., as well as the United States during the Jim Crow era, was seeing as a whole. Residents of Emporia considered itself a place of racial harmony. Growing up in Emporia, Essex wasn't outstanding in school, but he wasn't exactly a terrible student. He was noted as being about a C average student, but he wasn't like a moron by any means. Essex was fairly popular in high school and liked by his classmates. He dated both black and white girls in high school. Essex didn't take, uh, didn't take part in like a lot of sports, but he was in the Boy Scouts, enjoyed fishing and hunting. His uh, pastor recalled him as a uh, crack shot, and he also played the saxophone as well. After graduating high school, Essex, much like everyone who, you know, after they graduate high school, didn't really know what to do with his life. He tried going to college for a little bit, uh, but he ended up like dropping out. His dad got him a job, but Essex wanted to kind of take a, a different route in life. So this is in 1969. The U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War was beginning to escalate and getting drafted was more and more reality for Essex. He decided that he would join the military as a way to not get sent to the front line during Vietnam, but also as a means to get vocational training and also to kind of get him out of his small town and see a little bit of the world. So in January of 1969, Essex enlists in the U.S. Navy. After his basic training, Essex was sent to the Naval Air Station at Imperial Beach, California, where he was going to begin job training as a dental technician. Essex Lieutenant Robert Hatcher described Essex as a good sailor, a team player, and even an all-American boy. However, also when Essex joins the Navy, he's now directly experiencing racism that he had heard about for so long growing up. Essex wrote to his parents about it that, quote, blacks have trouble getting along here. For example, Essex, when he drove onto base, he was almost always stopped for an extensive search of his persons and his vehicle. He worked on the weekends as a bartender at the base enlisted men's club and was shocked to discover that he wasn't allowed in certain parts of the club just because he was black. One of the first major incidents that really, really made Essex snap was he and some buddies were cited for listening to music too loud. He was supposed to have a disciplinary hearing, which is called a captain's mast in the Navy, but Essex demanded that he have a court-martial so he could have a platform to finally expose the racial, racial hatred that he had faced. Because at this point, Essex is trying to like file complaints with his command to, for them to start you know, disciplining the racist white soldiers that are harassing him and whatnot, and just to kind of get his voice heard, but nothing is being done for him right now. So it's all kind of simmering in you know, simmering inside of Essex. Robert Hatcher, the lieutenant that we mentioned earlier, who said really good things about Essex, built his case for him and argued that his charges were racially motivated and unfounded. The prosecutor immediately agreed with Hatcher and the charges were dropped against Essex. He was pretty pissed off because he didn't get a chance to openly tell his side of the story. 
Though he didn't face any disciplinary action, his unit still fucked with him. He was assigned to work shit work details and assigned extra firewatch shifts at night, which if you don't know what firewatch is, basically in the military, they have these like hour-long shifts throughout the night in which like one like soldier, or in this case sailor, has to stay up for an hour just to pretty much stand guard. It's it's one of the stupidest things ever, but they still they still make you do it. Essex reaches another breaking point when he gets into a fight with a white petty officer. While I couldn't find the exact cause for the fight, I'm sure it probably had something to do with the petty officer making some sort of like racial or bigoted comment towards Essex. This was enough for Essex to say fuck the Navy and in November 1970 Essex went AWOL and he returned to Emporia, Kansas. Essex went home and vented to his parents about the racial prejudice he faced while he was serving. He was noted as being very disconnected, but after about a month, his parents convinced Essex to return to the Navy. Around December 1970, Essex returned to his base and faced a court-martial. His lieutenant again defended Essex, commenting not only did he have a hard work ethic and an outstanding performance record, but Essex had reason to go AWOL on the, count, on the account of the prejudice that he had been facing. The judge didn't hand down that harsh of a sentence, surprisingly. This is during a time of war, and for being gone for over 30 days, I think Essex could have been technically a deserter and could have gone as far as being hung, but I mean, they haven't done anything like that for desertion since like World War II. The punishment that Essex received was he was restricted to base for 30 days and forfeiture of $90 a month from his paycheck for two months. A few weeks after his punishment began, Essex was granted an early discharge around February 11, 1971. The reasoning for his discharge was, quote, unsuitable character and behavior, which resonated with Essex constantly over his next few short years leading up to his eventual death as well as the attack that he pulled in New Orleans. After the Navy, Essex returned to Emporia, but the stay was short-lived and Essex went to New York City. I couldn't find the exact connection Essex had with, with his move to New York City, but a New York City Police Department Intelligent Unit Detective Edwin Cooper said after the attacks that Essex carried out in New Orleans that Essex had some sort of connection with an offshoot uh, splinter group of the Black Panthers. And to kind of explain, this isn't like the original Black Panther Party. So in the 70s, a lot of these like groups that emerged in the 60s that were involved in a lot of like civil rights and anti-war anti-vietnam war protests like by the 70s they became very very radicalized and a lot of them went on to commit like almost like guerrilla warfare against the united states government there's groups like the weather underground the symbionese liberation army so this this isn't like the original black panther party for self-defense that had been established in the 1960s this is like a different group that just kind of took their name Detective Cooper with the NYPD intelligence unit, he postulated that this was where Essex was radicalized and taught certain guerrilla warfare tactics. After a brief stay in New York City, Essex returned to Emporia and there he bought a 44 caliber Magnum Ruger Deerslayer rifle. By August the same year, Essex left Emporia without telling anyone and headed to New Orleans, Louisiana. 
Essex rented out a one-bedroom apartment in New Orleans, and his neighbors described him as being very polite and friendly. The first few months he was in New Orleans, Essex was in school for vending machine repair and was described as a very eager and dedicated student. When Essex moved to New Orleans, then New Orleans Police Chief Clarence Garuso announced that the NOPD, the New Orleans Police Department, would create a new unit called the Felony Action Squad in reaction to the 142 murders that had occurred in the past 12 months in the city. Garuso publicly gave a shoot-to-kill order to the Felony Action Squad against whatever they determined as a threat, and it was not taken well by the general public. There was a lot of outcry and people said they just basically gave the police a license to kill. Being that Essex was a young African-American man, with good reason added to his paranoia that Essex was already experiencing at the time, as I mentioned, the Felony Action Squad was pretty much given a license to kill. He saw the police as a psychological trigger calling back to his Navy days where bigoted white men in uniforms ordered him around. It's unclear if Essex had a connection to any kind of like radicalist groups. It was around this time that Essex began reading books on the history of Africa and self-teaching various African languages. He gave himself the name Mata, M-A-T-A, meaning bow as in like bow and arrow. With all this going on, the racism Essex faced in the Navy, the establishment of the Felony Action Squad by the New Orleans Police Department, and one other event was enough to push Essex to pull off his attack. In November of 1972, two African-American students were killed during a protest that was held at the Southern University of Baton Rouge. This was the event in culmination with everything else Essex had experienced to escalate his ideologies into actual action and to attack against the police and the white establishment as well. So in December 1972, days before Essex pulls off his attack, he sends a letter to a local television station. The note itself would not be discovered until weeks after the attack, but this is what the note said. Africa greets you. On December 31st, 1972, approximately 11, the downtown New Orleans Police Department will be attacked. Reasons? Many. But the deaths of two innocent brothers will be avenged. And many others. P.S. Tell Pig Garuso the Felony Action Squad ain't shit. Mata. So on December 31st, 1972, Essex packed his Deerslayer rifle, a 38 caliber revolver, a gas mask, and various tools like wire cutters, fireworks, and matches into an OD green duffel bag from the Navy that had Warrior spray painted on the side of it and set out to make his war against the establishment. Shortly before 11 p.m. on New Year's Eve 1972, Essex took up a firing position in a vacant lot across from the entrance of the garage of, the, of one of the New Orleans police stations. Basically, a, there is a booth there that a cop would sit in and open and lower the gate to allow for personnel to drive in and out. The guard shift change was about to occur. Cadet Bruce Weatherford walked to the guardhouse to relieve Cadet Alfred Harrell. As Weatherford walked to the guardhouse, a shot rang out from Essex rifle. Weatherford instinctively jumped behind a parked car Harold left the guardhouse to check on his friend. 
A second shot rang out, hitting Harold in the chest and killing him. The sad and ironic part about this, Essex had set out to kill cops and white, but specifically white cops, and Alfred Harold was African American. The NOPD immediately began a manhunt, and Essex bolted to a nearby warehouse and broke into it for a second attack. The warehouse alarm went off, and two NOPD officers that happened to be a canine unit responded. Ed Holsey and Halbert Blappert were the officers. They exited their patrol car and approached the entrance of the warehouse, but believed this to be a false alarm, as alarms back then were faulty and tended to go off for like stupid shit, like a door slamming shut. The officers were approached by a warehouse night shift employee who asked if they would investigate. Holsey stated they would look into it and started back to their patrol car to get their canine unit. A shot rang out and hit Holsey in the stomach. Blappert tried dragging Holsey behind the car for cover, but Essex fired two more shots and Blappert took cover behind the patrol car. The bullet that hit Officer Holsey hit bowels and fecal manner worked its way into his wounds, causing a massive infection on top of having a giant hole in his stomach. Edward Holsey would die in the hospital two months later. Shortly after, a swarm of NOPD officers showed up as backup. They immediately searched the building, but Essex at this point had already escaped. When they searched the warehouse, all they found was a bloody handprint, a gas mask canister, and a brown purse containing 38 caliber bullets. Essex had carefully planned his escape. He marked his escape route by placing bullets in alleyways, fences, and other points, with the bullets pointing in the direction that he would need to run. His endpoint was a church nearby that he broke into. The NOPD at this point started a house-by-house -house search of the surrounding neighborhood when one of the officers discovered the pretty much Hansel and Gretel bullet trail that Essex had left behind. When the police officers got the idea that Essex may be hiding out of the church and were getting ready to essentially raid it, Chief Caruso came over the radio and had all officers stand down because there was a large influx of calls about the cops breaking doors down in the predominantly African-American neighborhood where the officers had been searching. The civilians and the community in this case had all right to be fucking infuriated at the NOPD because they point blank disregarded any civility or professionalism, just started flat out fucking kicking doors in and arrested people who were not involved in some beat black residents who did not comply. Garusa was trying to save face and ease racial tensions as best as he possibly could by not having officers assault a sacred place of the community, the church. Essex was able to escape back to his apartment. A couple of days after the initial New, Year, New Year's Eve shootings, Essex went to a local corner grocery store ran by Joe per Pernicaro. Pernicaro had been robbed at gunpoint many times before. He had customers they recognized and grew suspicious whenever someone he didn't recognize entered his store. Essex entered the store to just buy a few things, and Pernicaro was paranoid, and when Essex tried paying for his stuff, Pernicaro handed back Essex's money and told him to just take the things he tried buying, take his money, and leave the store, which um, probably probably had some racial slurs in there as well, or you know, some, some sort of tension between them. Essex left, and Pernicaro called the police, but no formal report was filed. On January 7, 1973, Essex dressed in OD green camo fatigues 
entered Percarno's store, armed with his Deerslayer rifle, pointed at Pernicaro and yelled for him to come over to him. Pernicaro tried running toward the back door, but was hit with a 44 Magnum slug fired by Essex and immediately fell to the floor. Essex assumed Pernicaro was dead and took off. Essex went about four blocks till he saw a parked running car. The window was cracked and Essex stuck the barrel of his rifle through it and demanded the driver to, to exit. Essex took the car and headed for the downtown Howard Johnson's hotel. The Howard Johnson Hotel is a 17-story building that's in like the heart of downtown New Orleans. The first four stories of the hotel are a parking garage, and Essex parked the stolen vehicle on the fourth level. The outside doors of the hotel were locked, and they could only be accessed by guests. So... Essex was going up them and he looked through windows where he could see hotel maids and tried convincing them to let him in by saying he had to meet someone and that he was running late. All the maids told him no because they were trying to comply with hotel policy where if you didn't have a key, they couldn't let you in. Essex finally found a door that was propped open on the 18th floor. Robert Stiegel was a doctor that had taken his wife on a delayed honeymoon to New Orleans. He got them a suite on the 18th floor of the Howard Johnson. A maid knocked on his room door and asked him if he wanted his room to be clean. Stiegel stepped into the hallway and told the maid to come back later. Essex appeared around the corner and hit Stiegel with the butt of his rifle. With Stiegel on the ground, Essex shot him in the chest, killing him. Stiegel's wife, Betty, ran out of their room after hearing the altercation, and Essex raised his rifle and shot Betty Stiegel in the head. They were both 27 years old at the time. Essex made his way into the Stiegel's room and set fire to the curtains and then left a pan-African nationalist flag as well. The gunfire and smoke caused a bunch of phone calls to the front desk of the Howard Johnson. Essex, in the meantime, made his way to the 11th floor. On the way, he ran into a startled black maid of the hotel who was shocked to see him with a gun and in fatigues. The maid knew that the shooter was in front of her, and Essex tried to calm her down by saying, this is a revolution, I'm only shooting whites, not blacks. The front desk manager and a bellboy went to check in on what the guests were calling about and boarded an elevator for the 11th floor. When the doors on the elevator opened, the two stepped out and the maid Essex spoke to about the revolution that he was trying to cause shouted a warning to the two men, telling them to run. But with everything going on, they quickly faced Essex, who raised his rifle and got off two shots. One hit the front desk manager, Frank Schneider, who was killed instantly. Essex at this point was breaking into rooms and setting fires throughout the hotel. He made his way to the 10th floor where he shot and killed the hotel general manager and continued to set more fires. Two New Orleans police officers arrived at the hotel. They were skeptical of an active shooter because back then this was something that New Orleans had never faced and even the U.S. as a whole had never really seen anything like this before. The only closest incident like this at the time was Charles Whitman shooting up a the Texas College campus from the Bell Tower. The two cops began a floor-by-floor -floor search, but without thinking, they got on elevator. And for those who don't know, an elevator is the last place you want to get on while there is a fire because they immediately stop. So the first of the police that arrived were stuck almost immediately. 
In the meantime, Essex made his way to the hotel pool on the eighth floor where he shot another hotel guest. Essex found a nearby hotel maid and asked her how to get out of the hotel. Essex began making his way down to the fourth floor to the stolen car and on the way shot a firefighter who was climbing up the side of the hotel with two cops from a balcony. Essex then shot a cop on the street who was trying to control the growing crowd. While all this is going on, Chief Garuso began to set up a command post in the bottom floors of the hotel. There are crowds of people gathering on the street below the Howard Johnson Hotel with mixed reactions. Some were showing up with privately owned rifles to volunteer to fight the killers and law enforcement officers from as far as Texas showed up to provide assistance and this all really pissed off Chief Caruso. Even though Essex had asked a maid for directions to get out of the hotel, he seemed to already have previous knowledge of the layout of the hotel. Essex ran from floor to floor shooting erratically at people in other buildings and while doing so, he kept turning his jacket inside out and then back to how it would normally wear. And he did this as a way to make it seem like there was more than one shooter. After reading more into this, I believe Essex was going to potentially try to escape and keep this going on as long as he possibly could and set up like other murder sprees and other like pretty much attacks on law enforcement officers. I don't think this was like you know, his final stand. I think he was trying to make this go on for as long as he possibly could. Essex set up on the 10th floor and an NOPD officer, Charles Arnold, had found a vantage point that was across the street that he thought it would be a suitable position to potentially start firing back at Essex. As he attempted to set up cover, Essex spotted him and shot him from across the street from the Howard Johnson Hotel, killing him. Essex then made his way down to the fourth floor parking garage in what I what I think he was trying to escape. When he was at the actual level where he, he had parked his car, he saw two cops through the window in the doorway and opened fire, not hitting anyone. I think when Essex saw the two cops at the fourth floor parking level, I think that's when he kind of changed his mind and was like, okay, there's there's not a way I'm going to be able to escape this, so I'm just going to kind of make this my, you know, my last hurrah. Essex then ran up to the 16th floor, took up a new position in a hotel room, and shot a traffic cop on the street below. Essex at this point was trying to make his way to the roof and ran into a search party of cops who Essex immediately shot and killed one of them. Essex made it to the roof and found a concrete bunker that provided him excellent cover. The NOPD began funneling in officers to the roof, but Essex's position in the bunker allowed him a perfect line of sight with one of the doors that were on the roof, so the first cop to bust through was immediately shot and killed by Essex. How the bunker on the roof was built gave Essex more than enough cover, but also a great view with the surrounding roof and the airspace above as well. There was also a pipe in the bunker Essex could climb up and immediately be out of sight of anyone aiming in. Caruso was getting pissed off and this turned into a standoff. Essex began the shootings shortly before 11 that morning and at this point it's about 2 in the afternoon but the overall standoff wouldn't end until that evening. Garuso wanted a helicopter so he could load police sharpshooters into it and get an aerial shot. 
At a nearby naval base, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Pittman of the United States Marine Corps had been watching the events of the shooting unfold on TV and without permission, jumped in his CH-46 helicopter and flew to the hotel. Police sharpshooters boarded the helicopter and Pittman flew a little less than 50 strafes over the building while the sharpshooters and cops on rooftops nearby fired thousands of rounds into the bunker. In between volleys, Essex would hurl insults at the cops, taunting them until his bitter end. Essex hunkered down in the bunker for seven more hours. I think at this point, he, I mean, he definitely knows that there's no way he's getting out of this. So in his final act, Essex emerged from the bunker, raised a black power salute, uh, his balled up fist, and yelled, come and get me. Over 140 police officers emptied their guns into Essex. The official autopsy said Essex had been shot more than 200 times. His leg was nearly blown off his body, and looking at some of the pictures of the crime scene, his entire body itself was just mangled. There had been rumors of a second sniper spreading amongst the responding officers of the New Orleans Police Department, and there were a lot of plainclothes cops running around the hotel. There was an incident where one of these plainclothes officers was shot by another cop who believed him to be the second sniper. In the end, Essex's body laid on the roof until the morning of January 8th, but Chief Garuso finally decided to just swarm the roof where NOPD officers discovered Essex's body. They determined that there was no second sniper, and with that, Essex in the end killed nine people and injured 13. And that is the story of Mark Essex. I'm not going to sit here and justify uh, the actions of Mark Essex because, I mean, he, he killed a bunch of people and I don't condone that at all. But when compared to Timothy McVeigh's story, his is at least like, I guess you can kind of say somewhat understandable because it was really reflective of, you know, the radicalist beliefs at the time. And then also uh, just kind of a reflection of you know, racism in America and as well as the military during that period uh, in which Essex was alive. So, I mean, overall, I, I wouldn't, I'm not saying like what he did was justifiable, but at least you can kind of see that linear connection to what led Essex to kind of being pushed over the edge. And I mean, that's, that's the episode for today. There's more people I wanted to cover. Uh, one was Eric Rudolph, who was the guy who bombed the Atlanta Olympics in 1996. But when I started researching his story, I realized that there's so much more to that. So I'm going to do an entire episode on it. Eric Rudolph was another white supremacist, anti-abortionist, Christian identity guy. And his the entire story around the Atlanta bombings, they're so fucking crazy. But um, I just want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, I know it's kind of kind of been a bit long since I've released another episode but I just I have so many different topics that I want to that I want to cover here in the near future and I'm just trying to get all the research in and starting to write and then all with all this like COVID shit that's going around and like you know I just I hope everyone out there staying safe and healthy and again just just thanks for listening I'm going to be churning out hopefully another episode here soon I got one that I'm currently in the works and uh, I think think it'll be a good one so Uh, Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, This is Walking Through Fire, and I'm Brian Hoops. Thank you.